Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you this morning. Palm Sunday is it's a wonderful way to begin a great week of focusing specifically on the love of God. We'll talk more about that this morning. I think in just in the life of our church in the last few weeks, it just has made that so much dearer, I think, to all of us to reflect on what he has done for us. I want to begin this morning with a story from 2006. A, a mother went shopping, perhaps not too unusual, and came back and found she had locked herself out of her car. And I think many of us can also relate to that experience. A nearby police actually responded and offered to break the car window to gain access to her vehicle, and she adamantly declined. Her beautiful car, her shiny Audi, should not be thus desecrated. And she instead insisted that a car be summoned to drive her about a mile home to get a spare set of keys to bring it back and gain entrance to the vehicle. So as soon as she turned to leave, the police disregarded her instructions and broke the car window out anyway to gain entry. Furious, uh, she moved fairly quickly to sue the city, arguing that they had defamed her character through this whole ordeal, but she ended up having a hard time making her case in court. See, it turns out she had a very high priority in life that she had placed on her car and on maintaining its beauty, which is not necessarily a bad thing. She also, it turns out, had a very high priority on her reputation and how she was viewed in the eyes of her community. Also, not necessarily a bad thing. But it appeared she had not placed a very high priority on her love for her two-year-old toddler that was locked in the car on an extremely hot day. In a world of competing priorities, some are more important than others. And some are most important. And the Corinthians, like the lady in the story, in their pursuit of these God-giving blessings that had been brought into their lives, their spiritual gifts, their role and status in Christ... They had prioritized those things, especially the ones that were most showy, most interesting, most impressive. But again, like the lady in the story, their pursuit of those blessings had actually become evil because it was at the expense of what should have been their highest priority, which is love. And so this morning, we're going to see Paul wrapping up an entire chapter's worth of a clarification on this point, on the priority of love. It's the argument he's been building since verse 1. Without love, our greatest accomplishments, our most impressive gifts are nothing. And beginning in verse 4, he traced the character and nature of love so that we would really know what it looks like when we see it and know what it should look like when we live it. And that crescendo built to the simple words we considered last time together, love never fails. And our text this week is taking those words and extending them to teach us that love is not only unfailing, but it is everlasting. And it's the final plea of Paul to underscore a very simple point. If we share God's perspective, we will prioritize love first. And so I want to invite you this morning, I want us to look at the words of 1 Corinthians 13 together for one last time, uh, at least right now. But if you would take your copy of God's word and stand with me as you are able to honor the reading of it, I want us to read this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
First Corinthians 13 says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face... Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning to stand in the grace that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord that has come to us because of the great love with which you have loved us. Thank you for the opportunity that we have had to study and to think about your love and how it ought to relate to the way in which we treat others. And I pray this morning it would be one last encouragement on this theme that our church would continue to be a place where we love one another as we ought to, not out of compulsion, not out of guilt, not out of manipulation, not out of self-righteousness, but as an overwhelming outflow of the gratitude we have for how well we have been loved by you. So this we pray in the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. We will continue in verse 8 this morning through the end of the chapter. And if you want to break down this passage, I think you can do so fairly neatly into three distinct ways that love proves its position as chief of all Christian virtues and gifts. Uh, these are three comparisons in which love takes the victor's crown, even when pitted against some impressively strong contenders. And the first comparison that Paul makes there comes in the second half of verse 8, as Paul shows us that love surpasses what is passing away. Love surpasses what passes away. Paul writes, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Paul is 
reintroducing now for us this topic of spiritual giftedness. As you recall, that was the topic that had sparked the whole debate, the whole discussion of love in the first place. He had been talking about the way that they were acting jealous and contentious of the the showy spiritual gifts there in Corinth. And he says, time out, guys. You've forgotten what's most important in all of this. It's not who can do all these showy gifts. It's how well you're loving each other. And that's actually going to feed them directly into chapter 14 that we'll get to next time. Excuse me, I think in two weeks after Easter. It's going to feed right back into chapter 14 where he goes back to the topic of spiritual gifts and finishes off his discussion. And he gives us here three gifts that he wants to highlight for the purpose of discussion. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Some of the most highly prized gifts in Corinth. To declare the words of God, especially if that was a message concerning the future, was really cool. And let's face it, it would be really cool if Caleb came up for the announcements and he said, let me tell you what's going to happen next week. We'd all probably be fairly impressed. Tongues was perhaps the Corinthian church's spiritual delicacy. I don't know that there was any gift they seemed to admire so much as that ability to just speak at will in a language they had not learned. And again, how cool would that be? The gift of knowledge, that spirit-aided comprehension of truth would have been admired in a culture that so highly prized and was strongly attracted to secret wisdom, deeper knowledge. This was an age when Gnosticism is taking root and everybody wants to figure out how to get to these different levels of enlightenment and be in the know. So to say, I have the gift of knowledge would have looked pretty good on your resume. But notice what Paul is saying. These three admittedly awesome gifts are inferior to the unfailing love that he has just been teaching us about. And they're inferior because they're all going to end. They are only temporary. Paul speaks of tongues and simply says, they will cease. It's an interesting word used throughout the New Testament Testament for something that simply stops. It gets used up. It fades away. There isn't anything necessary that comes in to make it stop. It just reaches a conclusion. We would understand in this word a possible allusion to the fact that that we see the gift of tongues like the miraculous gift of healings and the miraculous gift of working wonders as, as a gift that was given to the church for a specific season in the establishing of the church. In that period when revelation is being concluded, the writing of the New Testament, and having fulfilled its purpose, it has, to use Paul's words, simply ceased. It stopped. I'll put an asterisk here in case you've missed some of our earlier discussions on the topic. I want to reiterate that in proclaiming our conviction that that the gift of tongues and the miraculous sign gifts have ceased, we are not teaching that God is no longer a miracle-working God who can and does whatever he wants, whenever he wants to, but that this specific gift to his people ceased. Other gifts, though, like proclaiming God's words, understanding God's truth, those gifts endure to this day. They are gifts that are still edifying the church now, but they will not always do so. Paul declares our knowing, though a true knowledge, is only a partial knowing. 
He says our prophetic declaration of God's words, though a true declaration when it comes from Scripture, is only a partial declaration. Both are stopgap gifts that provide a necessary function in the church until something happens that will sweep them all aside, that will cause them, as he says, to be done away with. They don't just run out. They are ended by something that comes and finishes them off. And what is that thing? The arrival of what he simply calls the perfect. The perfect. What is the perfect? What is this coming reality that will be the highest good, the full completion, the ultimate reality? I think over and over we've seen Paul's love to point us from earthly realities to ultimate realities, and this is no exception. I believe Paul here is reminding us yet again of how everything comes to its fulfillment, everything comes to its perfection in the future. I want to read a few verses from Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. In the context here, we've skipped ahead in time to God's revelation of what will happen at the end of this age. In the flow of Revelation, we've seen God initiate his judgments on earth. And if you recall, those begin with these trumpet judgments. The first angel sounds, the second angel sounds, the third angel sounds, the fourth angel sounds, the fifth angel sounds, the sixth angel sounds, and then there's a pause. There's a pause in heaven. It's almost like divine justice is drawing in its breath for one last blast. And inside that seventh judgment will come all seven sealed judgments, all seven bold judgments, the full and completion of God's wrath as he then initiates the kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. And right before that seventh angel sounds his trumpet, we read this in Revelation 10 verses 5 through 7. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. And I just like that picture. There was an angel. He was just sort of straddling everything. And he raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. And that word finished there is from the exact same root as our word perfect in our passage. And I can't help but observe it's from the exact same root behind the words of Jesus Christ on the cross when he declared it is finished. What Christ accomplished on the cross led to the outpouring of the Spirit on the church and the giving of these amazing spiritual gifts. But these gifts are much like the ministry of the Holy Spirit Himself. They are a sign, they are a seal, they are a help, and they are a promise. They anticipate and they prepare. They stand between the accomplishment of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and our reception of its finished result at his return. It must have taken the Corinthians aback to realize that one day their precious gift of tongues would just trickle off and cease. 
one day their partial prophesying, their partial knowing would just be ended. These gifts they prized above all else would be taken back from them. That shouldn't have pained them, since in the place of these partial gifts would come the fullness of Christ and life everlasting in his presence and all that that entails. But for the Corinthians, these gifts from God were being clutched in pride. And I think we've all experienced the fact that nothing attached to our pride can be removed without pain. Do you know what will never be phased out, though? Never be made to cease? Never be done away with? It's love, right? It's love. Love is not just a spiritual gift. If spiritual gifts are made of divinely bestowed aptitudes to do things, loving relationships are made of divine love. Our gifts, our abilities, the things that we've been uniquely equipped to do to serve the church, that's the substance of our spiritual gifts. But love is for a different purpose. It does not merely facilitate the church in its work here in this world. Love is the essence of our very relationships with the one who made us and with one another. And it isn't going anywhere. I think we all need a dose of divine perspective from time to time. Because it's so easy to start rearranging our priorities haphazardly and prioritize what is easy or just feels awesome. And you know, that, can be, that can be just silly sometimes. Um, am I the only person that's ever spent like five minutes in a grocery store staring at all the tubs of peanut butter trying to figure out which one is the best value per ounce factoring in certain quality control requirements? And then walking out the door feeling very great that I saved myself five cents on that purchase. I'm a great steward of my resources. And then on the way home, be like, who feels like making lunch and having to do dishes? Let's just go and stop by the fast food and get some lunch out together. Anybody else ever done that? Okay, a few of you. Yep. It takes a lot of peanut butter sales to offset one trip to the fast food store these days. Sometimes, however, I think our, our lack of perspective can be a lot more serious. And if there's a thought from this section, maybe it's simply this. What have I treated as more important than love this week? What have I held on to as more important than love this week? How would I know I've done that? Well, just ask ourselves, what have I compromised love in order to achieve? What have I been willing this week to be unloving so that I could get something that I thought in the moment was more important? Maybe we compromise love so we could win an argument with our spouse or make our kids do what we want them to do rather than try to win their hearts. Or maybe we've realized we've been unloving because we're so busy trying to look like a pious Christian on the outside that we aren't actually concerned about the relationships and responsibilities that God has given us to humbly attend to. Maybe having enough me time has been more important than love this week. Maybe scoring points on social media with that witty meme and that witty political comment and that witty religious jab that just had to be posted. Paul is specifically dealing with the pride of the Corinthians in their use of the spiritual gifts, but the point he's making applies more broadly. 
How many things that are passing away do we view or at least act like we view as more important than expressing towards God's and expressing expressing towards God and expressing towards others the love that God has shown us? If we share God's perspective, we will always prioritize love first. And that prioritization is both what constitutes the pursuit of spiritual maturity and will be the sign that we are achieving it. Love surpasses what passes away, but secondly this morning, love overtakes what is immature. Love overtakes what is immature. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Paul gives us these two vivid illustrations here, and both continue the theme of moving from the partial to the complete, and from the immature to the mature. And the first picture he gives us here is that of growing up. Some of us have tried that. Some of us are considering it. It has been observed at various points in world history that children can occasionally demonstrate a lack of mature speech, thinking, and reason. And I'm sure this has never afflicted any of us nor any of our children, but in Paul's time, apparently, it was common. I want to be careful here, though. I don't think what Paul is trying to discuss here is sinful childishness versus righteous maturity as though something that is childish is bad. I believe what he's comparing here is what is appropriate for childhood to what is appropriate for adulthood. Childhood is the time for simple, concrete speech, declarations of truths in solid, simple categories that have been impressed on the mind and laid on the heart. That is appropriate to see in the speech of a child. Childhood understanding or thinking is often characterized by simple acceptance of truth from trusted sources, most ideally that of the parents who have heard what is declared and believe it, and that now frames how they think. Childhood reasoning tends to be pretty binary, as reality simply conceived is compared to truths simply believed, and a basic assessment is made. And when this kind of speech and this kind of understanding and this kind of reasoning is growing out of a faithful discipleship that is basing that on truth and love, then the result is wonderful. And we've often had those moments where we have seen and heard in children things that make us stop and say, wow, sometimes I think I overcomplicate this. However... When you find that same kind of thinking in a 35-year-old adult, it becomes different, doesn't it? Now, it's inappropriate. Now, it's incomplete. Now, it shows a lack of having built on that foundation. In adulthood, there should be the addition of speech that is richly informed with extensive knowledge and careful nuance. Our understanding should move from a stick-framed house to an elaborate palace of interconnected truths. Our reasoning should have all the conviction of childhood, 
but all the subtlety and development and experience that comes with time and testing. There is a moving on to a deeper reality. In the words of Paul, he did away with childish things when he became a man. And in Jewish culture, that could be a fairly abrupt transition. Around the age of 12, a Jewish boy was brought before his elders, and he would recite various things, and they would speak various things to him, and they would say, okay, when you walk out that door, you're a man. You have all the responsibilities of a man, the privileges of a man. Take heed, lest you make the mistakes of a man, and bear the consequences of a man. Adult responsibilities were taken up and childish was set aside as a conscious decision in a day in the Jewish culture. And that word Paul here says about doing away with childish things is the exact same word he used to describe the temporary nature of prophecy and knowledge that will also be done away with. In a sense, our spiritual giftedness, our reliance upon the proclamation of God's word from scripture in order to know God, these are appropriate but childish things they are not bad things they are not sinful things but they are things we experience because we are still growing up they are our tutors and our helpers so that we can become strong but they are temporary and when the perfect comes they are no longer needed and we will take up the fullness of our spiritual maturity In a similar way, Paul gives the example of a mirror. Ancient mirrors were often made of polished metal. Corinth in particular, and this may be why he chooses this imagery, Corinth in particular was a city famous for its bronze mirrors, beautiful bronze mirrors. Paul says we are seeing ultimate realities today through incomplete means. I think the word dimly is probably a little bit too harsh, both as a translation of the Greek here, and as a comment on the quality of Corinthian mirrors, ancient mirrors were actually pretty good. And you guys have probably seen this. You've probably seen a, a nicely polished piece of metal. It does a good job, doesn't it? You can see yourself pretty clearly. The Corinthian mirrors, ancient mirrors in general, were not known for just being dim and hazy. They did a pretty good job of recreating your image. I think a better way to translate this word here would be to use the word indirectly. To see in a mirror indirectly. A mirror is a useful tool. It is one that reveals much that is true. And any of you teenagers here this morning, when you look in the mirror, some days you probably just wish it was lying to you about the zit right in the middle of your forehead, right? But as helpful as a mirror is, as much truth as it reveals, it is incomplete information. You can only see a certain limited field of view. It can only convey so much depth. It can only impart so much of the personality of what you're looking at. What a difference we've noticed in our modern age, haven't we? Between being on a video call with somebody and actually seeing them in person, face to face. The Christian life today is full of blessings. Scripture, the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us, the fellowship of the saints, the use of our spiritual gifts within the context of the body of Christ to equip ourselves for the work of ministry. But even with all of these gifts, they are all mirrors. They are all ways of us perceiving God in the world to come indirectly. The mirror is telling the truth. 
It isn't lying, but it isn't meant to convey all that we will experience when we finally see God face to face. And it's interesting to think that God sees us directly, but we only perceive him indirectly. We are fully known, as Paul would say, but we know him only in part. And what an amazing thought that one day we will see our Savior face to face and truly behold and truly know him as directly as he even today sees us. That's amazing. This Friday, I had just come home from attending the memorial service of our beloved Henry. And I haven't even gotten out of my truck yet when a dear neighbor came over and he actually knocked on my hood to get my attention. Met me in my garage to let me know that his mother-in-law had just passed away. I had the privilege just a few days before that of sitting by her deathbed and hearing her profess belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ that she had just heard. And it is amazing to think that a 12-year-old boy and an elderly lady who has been in Christ for less than a week are both full-fledged theologians today with a complete and adult understanding of our Savior because they can see him face to face. And I am standing here the child. I am standing here the one who is waiting to grow up. I am still staring in a mirror, trying to discern all that I can while I wait for the coming of the perfect. And so are we all, are we not? So much of our current experience will fall away when that day comes. But not love. But not love. To see our Savior face to face, to know him fully, even as we are fully known, this will be the experience of love made full. And so I want to challenge us with this thought. Are we ready? Are we eager to grow up? Are we eager to see that day and to move towards it? Brothers and sisters, are we content to remain as childish as we can get away with? Or are we hungry to grow as mature as we possibly can be? Let us be children who take full advantage of all that we have been given. Our speech may be rudimentary, but let's make sure it is true. Our understanding may be limited, but let it encompass all that has been revealed to us in that mirror. Our reasoning may be childish, but let it be scripture-wrought, spirit-filled, gospel-fueled to carry us with conviction through every decision that we make day after day. So whether we are actually children or we are adults of any age, consider what things in our life we are actively investing in so that we may become better, stronger, more successful. Consider how in our lives we've all taken pains to grow and improve in those things that are important to us. And, and my question is this, is one of those things your spiritual maturity? Is one of those things your love for God? Do we have a plan? That might be a good topic for future life group conversations to consider how do we best most intentionally seek to grow into adulthood until the perfect comes and completes that process. There's so many ways that we can work to improve our understanding of God and to live holy lives, but there is nothing we can do so valuable as this, to understand 
what is the love of God towards us in Jesus Christ and to do whatsoever feeds our love for him and for others according to truth. That is the number one thing that we can do if we desire to seek after those things that are not childish, to know and to understand and to think deeply on the love of God for us in Jesus Christ, and then to feed whatsoever in our lives best allows us to grow in our love for him in return and for others according to truth. <clears throat> there are many things that we can prioritize in our spiritual growth. But if we share God's perspective, we will prioritize love first. And the final flourish this morning in Paul's argument takes us past spiritual gifts and discussions of maturity to a truly amazing comparison. Love not only comes first when it competes against the gifts of this age, even when compared with the great Christian virtues of faith and hope themselves. Love excels what only anticipates. Thirdly this morning, love excels what only anticipates. Look at verse 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Such familiar words. Most of us probably have that memorized or some maybe even have it like on one of those little artsy plaques that we hang up on our walls. Which is not bad. Because these are words that deserve to be prominent in our lives. They are profound. Faith and hope are, are closely linked together. Faith is, as scripture says, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Do you hear that? The assurance of things hoped for. Our hope is what we believe can truly save us. And our faith is the trust we put in that hope. Our hope is what we are believing is true, and our faith is our willingness to actually live like we believe that, to trust it. You can't be a good Christian without having the hope of Jesus Christ and faith in him. These virtues are essential and very central to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But they are not, as great as faith and hope are, they are not most central there is still a virtue which excels even faith and hope. Surprise, it's love. And I can think of at least three ways in which love excels faith and hope. First, faith and hope are temporary and love is eternal. When the perfect comes, we shall no longer have need of hope because what we are anticipating shall be sight. When the perfecting of hope or with the perfecting of hope will come the end of faith as well. We will no longer need to trust in the promises of God. We will be experiencing the fulfillment of the promises of God. Love excels faith and hope because love will outlast them all. Into all eternity, we will experience and express love. Second, faith and hope are human and love is divine. We cannot look to God to see how we should hope. Ever thought about that? You cannot imitate the hope of God. You cannot imitate the faith of God. Because God hasn't had to hope or trust in anything ever in all of eternity. What is there that he does not know with certainty? What comes to pass that 
is not coming to pass because he determined it before time began. God is not hopeful that his plans come about. He doesn't have faith in his gut feelings. He is the God who is. That's kind of an interesting thought. We hope. We require faith. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So faith and hope are both human experiences. But God is love. When we love, we are reflecting the image of God in man. Love excels faith and hope because it is a manifestation of the character of God. Whereas hope and faith are temporary and exclusively human realities as we wait for the great salvation that we are to receive at the coming of the perfect. And third and last this morning, faith and hope are dependent, but love is what is depended on. Great ships cast their anchors down into the sea, and they count on those anchors laying hold of something strong and immovable. Our souls cast their anchors into the sea of heaven, and upon what do the great chains of faith and hope secure themselves? Is it not the very love of God towards us in Christ Jesus? Thus these three are connected, but they are not equal. Love cannot survive dependent on hope or faith, but hope and faith are made sure when they are secured in the unfailing love of God toward us. And so our lesson is simply this. Let love rule over every virtue. Let love rule over every virtue. If we pursue being truthful to the expense of love, our truth is not speaking truthfully. But if our truth serves love, then it will be expressed as it should. Or to go back to where we started, if we speak with the eloquence of angels, but our speech is not ruled by love, we are useless. If we prophesy and reveal all mysteries and knowledge, but have no love, we are useless. If we have all faith and sacrifice both body and possessions for our hope, but love does not come first, we are useless. How we think, how we act, and how we believe are either loving or they are unchristian. And so whether you want to say that love must order every virtue or if you prefer Augustine and you simply define virtue as well-ordered love, the point remains the same. If we share God's perspective, we will always prioritize love first in everything, now and into eternity itself, which I think is a great transition into our time around the Lord's table this morning. And I'd invite you to begin taking and preparing your elements Today is Palm Sunday, as we've noted. It is that day when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, fulfilling the words of the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah. We read about that in Matthew 21.5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
And as Jesus descended the Mount of Olives towards the eastern gate of Jerusalem, a massive crowd came out to greet him, waving palm branches and laying down their coats and shouting, Matthew 21, 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But it wasn't all happiness and good cheer that day, was it? There was one group in Israel that really did not understand their priorities. And they were upset. Luke 19.39 says this. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They had prioritized their positions of power, their political influence, their personal interpretations of religious propriety over what Jesus had once called the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. They were so focused on those things that made them impressive in the eyes of others that they had completely lost track of both God's love for them. They lived in fear of God and of the love that they ought to have for others, and they treated others with hostility and contempt. Jesus, our Savior, on the other hand, had his priorities straight. And I want us to hear the love in his voice in the following words. Luke 19, continuing on in verse 40, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if these, speaking of the crowd, become silent, the stones will cry out. That's the part we usually like, wow, let's stop there. That's not where he stopped. He kept writing a little further in verse 41 when he approached Jerusalem. He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Sometimes we forget that the joy of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem that we celebrate on Palm Sunday was interrupted by tears. By weeping, he grieved for a city that did not yet know what they needed to be at peace with God and what they needed he had come to provide. Today we begin a week that marks for the church the high point of our calendar year. This week we stop to remember the love of God demonstrated toward us in Jesus in a unique way. And by the grace of God, we do know the things that make for peace and the symbols of those things that we hold in our hands even now. It was the death of Jesus Christ. It was his body broken for us that allow us to lay hold by faith in hope of the good news that sinners can be made children of God. That is what we come to celebrate. And all of that is a story of the love of a creator for his rebellious creation and his working his grace in their lives so that we who have been loved would then begin to be transformed into the image of the one who loved us so that in our lives, love, as it was shown to us in Christ, might become the dominant characteristic of our lives. This we declare and we remember. And as we even saw this last week, we share in 
no matter what comes along into our lives. And I want us to then just consider carefully the peace you have with God and the love behind it all as we pray and then we take together. Would you pray with me? Father God, you have loved us with an everlasting love because you are love. And that love has come to us through the person of Jesus Christ, your son, whom you have sent to be the propitiation of our sins, who has absorbed and satisfied your holy wrath on the rebellion of our sinfulness so that we can now eat and drink these tokens of his death in peace with you. Father, we ask that you would grant us the grace to stop prioritizing in our hearts anything that would compete with our understanding and appreciation of your love for us and the privilege that we have to show that kind of love by the power of your spirit to others. May all our truth, all our gifts, all our abilities, all our talents be made to serve this purpose that we would so love others as we have been loved by you. And with that conviction, Lord, may we take this morning, this memorial of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Shulamite woman in Song of Songs declared, love is as strong as death. And with this bread and this cup, we declare, no indeed, for love is stronger than death. Let us take together.